together with them. We'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Romans 3. We'll be going verses 21 to 31. This passage has been called really the center of the Bible. I don't know if grammatically it's probably not the center of the Bible, but it's been called the very center, the heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel, and it's at least the heart of the book of Romans. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 3. We'll be reading verses 21 to 31 together. This is God's holy inspired word. You know what? Um, there's a there's a tradition that the other churches from various backgrounds do. We're, we're not going to do it this morning, but I, I might want to do it at some point in the future. Is They have people stand for the reading of God's Word. And the reason they do that is to acknowledge that, that it's God's holy, inspired Word, and His Word alone deserves respect. So maybe we can stand in our hearts this week, and maybe in a few weeks we get to stand up. Oh, you can stand up now if you want to. That's good. I love it. Um, well, let's read God's Word, at least standing in our hearts this morning. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. Of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. God, thank you for your life-giving word. Lord, this passage, these words are the very hope that we have for all of life. Lord, this is the words of hope that that Piedmont Women's Center shares, Lord, that we share, that we hold to, Lord. This is our most precious hope. God, I pray this morning that this would not be routine or mundane to any of us. God, I pray that you would enliven each and every one of our hearts. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would revive us through this word this morning. You would make us alive. That would you help us pay attention. You would help us focus on your word and, and put aside all and any other distractions and anything else we might be thinking of, Lord. I pray that you would help us put those things aside, help us commit to worship you right now. And God, I pray that you would revive us. Revive us with your good news. Would your good news become good to us again this morning? 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's been a lot of different movies over the last probably 10 years that have been all about being stranded in space to some degree. I think it was last year or two, there was a movie called The Martian, and it was about how a guy was stranded on Mars in this big storm, and all of his, um, I, I guess you call them co-workers, fellow astronauts, they all stranded him there, left him behind, and then they finally figured out that, that he really is still alive. Um, it would be a desperate plight. I couldn't imagine getting stranded on Mars or as some other movies have had, stranded on the far side of the galaxy through a wormhole far away. Maybe you're not the science fiction type. We can at least imagine that it would be a desperate plight to be stranded on your own in space with no extra supplies, no means to get back home, no means to come to the warmth of the sun. That would be desperate. I think we can at least imagine that and Kind of shudder at that likelihood. You know, what the Apostle Paul has been doing so far is he told us the gospel in Romans 1, 16, 17, and 18. And he told us about a righteousness that, that is by faith. But then he kind of, he sends us out into the space, really, of, of God's wrath, into this utter darkness, into the cold, where you have no hope. And you think there is just no hope for being near God at all. And Paul paints this picture in the previous two chapters, and he's leading up to this glorious crescendo. He paints this picture, though, of being stranded, of being hopeless, that everyone here is under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter if you are come from a moral background, a religious background, an irreligious background. It doesn't matter how smart you are. We are all under God's deserved wrath. And you need to feel that. You need to be aware of that. I I think part of the gospel message is reminding ourselves, as well as the good news, what the bad news that we deserve really is. We need to know, we need to remind ourselves that apart from the grace of God, we'd be far worse than being stranded on the far side of the galaxy. We are under God's eternal wrath with no hope for ever getting out of it on our own. That's a desperate plight. It's far more desperate than being alone and just dying a lonely death. Is being under the horrific wrath of God forever. That's the, that's the bleak picture that the Apostle Paul has been painting, has painted all the way through these, these first couple chapters of Romans. In, in Romans 3, 9 through 12, if you look down your Bibles, he says that all, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter if you were part of God's chosen people or not, he says all. Are under sin. And he says, as in verse 10 is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And then he says, all have turned aside. He says, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And look down at verse 20 of Romans 3, the, the very verse preceding this, this passage that we're looking at this morning. Paul writes, by works of the law, no human being will be justified or pronounced righteous in his sight. And by the way, that those words for justify, whenever you see that in Romans 3, it's actually all the same exact root word. Whenever it says either righteous or justified, it's all the same exact root word. To be made righteous, to be declared righteous, to be seen as righteous, to be um, acting as righteous, to be called righteous, justified, having the right to stand before God. And he says no human being will be pronounced just in his sight. That's a bleak picture. It leaves us stranded. 
You know, we talked about how compared to Hitler or Stalin, Mother Teresa might look pretty good. But compared to the absolute, complete moral purity of God, no one is good at all. And that's, that's what Paul has been showing us. And so we get to this place, when we get to this passage, it, it begs the question, and that's what the Apostle Paul is answering here, it begs the question of, well then how in the world can such unrighteous people who have no hope in themselves, how can they ever be made righteous? How can they ever be made righteous before God? What's the hope here? And that's what question the Apostle Paul gloriously answers in these verses. He shows us how, how God makes us righteous by faith because of Christ. How, how we are made right with God by faith through Jesus Christ. What if I told you that you never have to worry or wonder again about whether God accepts you completely or not? Would you believe it? Do you believe it? What, what if I told you that you never have to fear or wonder if God is ever punishing you again? You know, I, I think growing up in a Christian home at times, I, I felt like God was kind of always disappointed for me, with me, and, and, and the other shoe was always about to drop, and if I didn't meet up to the performance that I was aware of, that, that he would be angry at me. What if I told you that you don't have to live that way? What if I told you you can always rest in God's complete pleasure with you as a person? Does that seem to be too good to be true to you? That's exactly what Paul is getting at in these verses and what he's making plain. The Really the, the big idea, if you're taking notes, the, the main idea of these verses is that we are always right with God. We are always right with God only by faith because of Christ. We are always right with God or we can always be right with God only by faith and because of Christ. Paul, Paul writes, look down in your Bible in verse 21, if you will. He says, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. And then the rest of this passage, it's, it's really the most astounding words in the entire Bible because really the entire Old Testament, you get the notion that, wait a minute, God talks about this righteousness, but he, it, and then the law is a command to be righteous, but this righteousness doesn't seem to come through the law. It doesn't seem to come through the prophets because no one ever really gets it through the law. No one ever gets it through what was talked about in the law. Nobody gets it through works. But this righteousness that the law and the prophets point to, it comes another way. And obviously people in the Old Testament even were made righteous, but it didn't seem to be by the law. And really this, this first ray of hope that shines, shines the warmth on you as you're out in the cold and your space capsule stranded. This, this first ray of the warmth of the sun that shines on us that we see in verse 21 is that we are made right with God by faith. We're made right with God by faith. Let that sink in for a minute that we're, we're made right with God. He says, but now... This now, it refers to since the coming of Jesus Christ, since Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, since the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a way to be permanently and forever right with God. And it comes by faith. He says, the law and the prophets bear witness, give testimony to the righteousness of God. But they don't make it clearly known. They, They give testimony to it, but it doesn't come through it. 
And then look in verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God through faith. So wait a minute. We can actually have the very righteousness that God himself possesses. That should kind of floor you. Who here has been perfectly right since birth? Anybody? Anybody ever been perfectly right since birth? You know, your mom may have told you you were a perfect child. Let me help you. You weren't. You, she might have said you were a perfect baby. I, I don't believe that. Moms who get older are deluded. I've never known a perfect baby. And if anybody here, you know, they're telling you about how, you know, what you need to do with your kids because their kids were perfect, don't believe them. None of us were perfect. None of us were ever right since birth. None of us are perfectly morally right. None of us are right inherently in all of our desires. Who of us here can say we've always desired only good? We've always desired only the love of God and the love of other people. We've only desired God's glory. Anybody, can anyone here honestly say that? If you can, by the way, please stand up. None of us here in good conscience, I don't care whether you believe in Christ or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. You, you can't say, none of us can say, and, and by the way, those of us who are Christians, we can't say that either. We can't say that somehow we've always wanted what's right and good, that we've always wanted God's glory, we've always wanted to love God and love other people righteously. And yet God says here that we can have the righteousness of God, that kind of rightness. We can possess the righteousness of God, meaning God can look at us as righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says it's been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and here's the wonderful news. It says it's for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all who believe, for there's no distinction. And I want you to listen up. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or whether you are a legal or illegal immigrant. It doesn't matter. It's for all who believe. It doesn't matter what you're tempted by. Maybe you're tempted by things that you don't think anybody else can relate to. There's no distinction. God's righteousness is for all who believe. It's not based on your gender or how weak or how strong you are. It doesn't matter what kind of pagan you are right now or what kind of pagan you used to be. It doesn't matter how faithful you have been or have never have been. It's not how much money you make. It's not what you do for a living. It's, there's no distinction. God's righteousness is for all who believe. It, it doesn't matter how you were raised or what kind of home you lived in or what kind of home you live in now. It, it doesn't matter what kind of education you have, how smart you think you are. It, it doesn't matter what you've done or not done, how you maybe walked away the faith and you haven't come back. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you've achieved or whether you will never achieve anything that you want to. And by the way, when you get to your middle of your life, you'll probably feel like that. It doesn't matter if you ever achieve the dreams you have in this life. It says there is no distinction. It's for all who believe. And you want to know why? Paul tells us. He says there's no distinction for all who believe. He says because everybody has sinned. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. What does that, what does that mean? He says everybody sinned. It doesn't matter how moral you think you are. 
Maybe you think that your life is really good and you've got it all together right now. And so you think, I've got a happy marriage and I'm happy as a clam in the mud. I, I guess a clam in the mud would be happy, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of where they live, so. You know, all fall short of the infinite, eternal, astounding glory and majesty of God. You know, I don't care how good your, your kids are or how wonderful of a parent you think you are. I don't care how bad of a parent you think you are or how smart or clever or wise or philosophical or how many degrees or what positions you have or how creative or artistic or talented you might be. All of us fall short of God's glory. No matter how oblivious and deluded you are about your lack of a need for, about how you lack God and you need God. Doesn't matter how delusional you are. You might believe there is no such thing as gravity. Your delusion will not keep you from falling when you jump off a building. It doesn't matter how delusional about how good you are. Your delusion will not make you as glorious and as perfect and as holy as God. You see, we're all created in the image of God. We were all created to reflect His glory perfectly. And yet our image has been sullied and destroyed by sin to some degree. And we don't glorify God like we're supposed to. And actually, it's the first part of Romans when when Paul talks about man's first offenses. He says, you know, we didn't give God glory. You didn't glorify God with your life. We're called to give God glory on our very nature. And we don't glorify God. We don't don't glorify Him what we do. We don't love Him like we should. We don't live for Him like we should. We don't honor Him like we should. We don't give thanks to Him like we should. That alone is enough. To be under his wrath. And yet all of us have actively sinned. And we exceedingly fall short of God's glory. And we need a righteousness apart from what we do. You know, I don't know anybody who is self-aware. Who could even say that this week. They did not fall short of glorifying God in some way. I don't know anybody. And by the way, if you're an unbeliever here, you, you, you're not a Christian, you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, don't get the notion that Christians believe they're perfect. That's not the Christian gospel. All of us fall short. All of us are equally in need of God's righteousness. But as verse 24 makes clear, that's the second major truth, the life-giving truth that we see in these verses, is that we are never right by what we do. We're never right by what we do. We're, we're never right by what we do. He says, we're justified. Look down your Bible in verse 24. Look at the words Paul uses, that God uses here. He says, by his, what's that word? You can say it out loud. Grace, excellent, as a gift, excellent, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's by his favor, and it's always as a gift. It's never by what we do. I love what F.F. F. Bruce says about this passage and he shares and he says I can never I can never be really satisfied that I have made the grade that my behavior has been sufficiently meritorious to win the divine approval even if I do my best and the trouble is I do not always do that how can I be certain that my best comes within measurable distance of God's requirement I may hope but I can never be sure 
But if God in sheer grace assures me of his acceptance in advance and I gladly embrace his assurance, then, then I can go on to do his will without always worrying whether I am, going, I am doing it adequately or not. That should be doing, by the way, doing it adequately or not. I can go on to do his will without ever worrying about whether I'm doing it adequately or not. In fact, to the end, I shall be an unprofitable servant, but I know whom I have believed. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. God's righteousness is a gracious gift. It's a gift. It's something you don't earn. It's given not because of who you are or what you do. It's a gift. Um, God doesn't come to you and say, hey, I've got this gift now. Pay me for it. That's not a gift at all. If somebody came to you on your birthday and said, I've got this great gift for you, but you, need, you owe me $250 for it, you would say, no thanks, man. What are, you, what are you kidding? That's no gift at all. Or if somebody gives you a gift on your birthday and you say, hang on, let me pay you for it. That would be a great offense. It's not a gift at all. A gift is something you don't earn. It's because of the graciousness of the giver. You can't ever be right with God by what you do. And if you're, if you're trying to be right with God by what you do, you need to stop. Because that's a downward spiral you'll never get out of. All who have faith in Jesus are justified by God's grace as a gift with no demands to satisfy God's law anymore. doesn't mean that we don't satisfy His law. There's no demands to satisfy His law. What it means is if you have already been counted as fully satisfying God's law, why would you still try to satisfy his law? You don't, you don't have to try to satisfy a law that you've already completely fulfilled. If you've already paid your debt for a speeding ticket, you're not going to keep continually going back trying to pay that debt again and again. That's a little bit of insanity. God gives you his righteousness as a gift and it comes, it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the ancient Roman world, they didn't have bankruptcy. They didn't have debtor's court. But if you wanted to start a new business and you would go to some leading Roman citizen who had money, you'd go to them, you'd, you would have some kind of oath or contract, some kind of agreement with them, a covenant with them. You would loan money from them. But imagine that the economy crashed, as economies sometimes do, and it took a tank and you lost your business. You actually would then owe that person still. There's not a, there would not be a resolution of that debt. That debt would still be outstanding. You just would have no way to pay it. And so what you would have to do, and what was very common in the Roman Empire and to the people that Paul was writing, it was actually the church was probably full of these kinds of slaves. So this language of redemption, that meant something to them. And so what you would have to do is you would hope that someone would redeem you. You know, maybe you had some rich relative that lived 50 miles away and, and maybe someone would get word to that relative of yours, maybe some rich uncle far away, and they would hear of your plight that you had been sold into slavery because it was your only hope, and so you were now enslaved to your debtor. You, you, you were a slave and, and your whole family had to be sold as a slave. And so what would happen is your rich uncle from 
50 miles away. Hopefully he would have mercy on you. Hear about that. He would actually go to the pagan temple in Rome. Not to the courts, but the pagan temple. And he would pay to the temple plus a little extra. He would pay to redeem your debt. He would pay your debt plus he'd pay off the, the pagan deity. And he'd pay a little bribe. And then they in turn would pay your debtor for you. And then you would, you would be owned in a sense by this pagan deity. And, and that was the picture of redemption in, in the setting that Paul's writing to. But Paul uses that language in a very different way. Look down your Bibles here. What does he say in verse 24? It says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus bought you back from slavery. You had an unpayable debt that would have been impossible to pay and you would have been slaved forever to unrighteousness into the kingdom of darkness and yet now you've been bought through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus and he goes on to explain what that redemption is. But first you need to see that you've been bought back through this dominion of sin, through the kingdom of the power of this world and he accomplished redemption of all who believe in him. He's brought on us out of slavery. And in verse 25 and in verse 26, look down your Bibles, you can see that this verse comes, that this redemption comes at a very real cost. In this third truth that Paul shows us that we are only right by the payment of propitiation. That's a very big word. We normally try to avoid theological words like that in sermons. We try to, to use other words, but this is a word that's just in the text. You can't avoid it. You can't get around it. It's a word that's there for a reason. We're only right by payment of a propitiation. It says, whom God, look in verse 25 and read it with me, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And I'll explain what propitiation is in a moment. But the payment for your ransom, for your redemption, is the blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And then he explains it was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. We'll get to that in a minute too. It wasn't right that God did not fully punish humanity prior to Christ. No one really ever got fully what they deserved. But he says, first of all, that his righteousness is only made possible by Christ's propitiation, who God planned. When it says that he put forward, that's, that's not really the best word there. The best word is really whom God planned or purposed ahead of time as a propitiation. Because he was always forbearing, knowing that he was planning and purposing to make payment for our redemption in himself. A blood debt had to be paid. The punishment for all our unrightness or unjustness, if you will. It had to be taken and the penalty had to be paid in full in order to be bought, redeemed back to God. And this word propitiation, to propitiate means to turn anger away. To turn somebody else's anger away from us. It comes from really an ancient idea of of the Greek gods and how if you wanted to go on a voyage and you wanted safe passage... Um, they wrongly thought that you'd had to make the gods happy with you because the gods were always angry with you. And so you would make a payment at this pagan temple and to make the god happy, propitious with you so they would no longer be angry so that you would receive the god's favor. Well, Paul takes that idea and he turns it around and he says that you could never make payment to God by anything you do. And yet 
God made payment for you. He made himself propitious to you by giving his own son. And he gave his own son as a sacrifice to turn away his own right and just anger so that God might be shown to be right. And he turned away his own anger from those who deserve it and onto his own son. And so by his blood, he's he's given us his life on the cross. His punishment for our disobedience was turned on the son instead of us. He has now been made propitious towards us. Favorable towards us, but not because of anything we've done. Because of something that he said, you can't do it. I'm going to give my own son. Because my justice has to be satisfied on the one hand. And yet my love must be satisfied as well. And there's no way for my justice to be satisfied fully. Unless I do it myself. And so he sent his own son. So that both his love and his wrath against sin. His righteous wrath against sin would be completely satisfied in one person. In one place on the cross. And there's no symbolism here. In the Old Testament, sins were symbolically put on an animal. Temporarily atoning, temporarily turning away the wrath of God. But no no bull or goat can ever compare in value to a human, right? Like, you know, what judge would say, if your goat was killed by your neighbor, then you have to die? That That just doesn't make sense. The value of a human life is far greater than the life of an animal, no, no animal could ever atone. So God sent his son to become a man, to be a perfect man so that he didn't have to atone for his own sins, but so that he could atone for our sins. And now punishment's been truly satisfied in Jesus. And we receive this, this great exchange, this being made right, being declared right. We receive this great exchange where God is now... His wrath has been turned away and now we've been declared right and perfectly obedient in his sight as we accept Jesus' obedience by faith. So we say that, you know, God, you say that Jesus did all this for me. So by faith, I receive that. And by faith, I believe that you see me now as right in you as I, by faith, put all my sins on Jesus. And God did this, it says, to demonstrate that he was right or just and the justifier. So what what he means is it would have been unjust. Imagine you go to a judge and you petition this judge because someone has killed all of your children. And you go to the judge and you say, judge, this person needs to pay. Whatever you believe about, whether it's capital punishment, life in prison, this person needs to pay. You would all agree there must be some satisfaction. There must be some justice. But imagine that judge said, no, it's no big deal, man. He just killed your kids. And he's going to go free. There'd be no justice at all. And unfortunately, a lot of times, there's not justice in the courts or different measures of justice. It would not be right, and it was not right that God let all the past sins of humanity go without punishing them fully. It says, in his divine forbearance. That's what that means. In his forbearance, he let them go. So he had to show that he was right to do that. He was actually really a right judge, a just judge. And so he gave his son to show that 
he really does pour out wrath on sin, but he pours it all out on Jesus. He was just waiting until the time he had planned to put Jesus forward as a propitiation. And now God is both just, a right judge, a just judge, who does and has punished all sin permanently, who doesn't let sinners get away with sin, but punishes sins on Jesus. And he's also the justifier makes us just or righteous. And by the way, those words are both the same root form of righteousness. Look in verse 26. He might be just and the justifier. He might be righteous and the righteouser of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now God declares us, get this, to be as righteous as we ought to be. Completely accepted, completely acceptable in his sight. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you are trusting in him, let no one tell you different. Don't let your own head tell you different. God sees you as completely accepted and acceptable, as completely right before him, with the right to stand before him cleanly and purely the rest of your days. I don't know about you, but I'm never as righteous as I, as I should be. I never am. <laughs> I'm always aware of my unrighteousness. And in fact, without thinking, I can often go through life with this kind of low-grade guilt, thinking I'm, I'm not good enough. I feel like I've disappointed God. I feel like I'm not doing good enough. I feel like I'm not being good enough. I feel like if I ever make a mistake, God is not happy or pleased with me, that, that I, I'm never, ever perfect. I don't mean I'm always there, but, but that's always this latent, latent discouragement or guilt in the background. This nagging voice, the devil telling me that you're never really good enough. You know, God says you're righteous, but that's not real. You aren't really. You're no good. He doesn't love you. He doesn't accept you. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't even measure up to the standards I set for myself, much less the standards that I see in God's word for perfect and complete holiness. And as humans, it's the problem that we all have. We're all innately aware of, even if we deal with it differently. There's a bunch of different ways you can deal with that, by the way. There's a bunch of different ways. You can deal with that like a good moralist, and you can endlessly and tirelessly work to try to be good enough, try to be accepted by God, try out moralism and try out legalism, but you're really just self-deceived and proud. Where we can labor, some people try to labor under this continual sense of, of guilt, and we try all manner of things to assuage your guilt. And, and some people try to ignore your guilt and cover up your guilt and with endless distractions and entertainment or constantly looking for the next thing so we can ignore this nagging voice that we have because we're unhappy otherwise. Some people try to look for solace in drugs or alcohol or friendships or food or music or something else or sex or whatever. Some get depressed and live in a continual state of discouragement and depression. Some try to fix the depression with all kinds of remedies that don't ever really work. And some take their lives out of desperation of this nagging sense of not being good enough. Others pretend there really is no problem and instead they create this 
construct. They become their own God, and they create their own morality and their own righteousness, and they say that, you know what, Um, that whole idea of religion and morality, those are just constructs that we humans create, and they live their lives hardening their hearts to God, and they pretend that they're okay, and that, that really the problems of religion are God himself. And they set themselves up to ungod God. And others pretend that they're okay with God because the standards he requires really aren't as bad as what the Bible makes out. That, and they pretend, well, God's not really unhappy with me. I'm basically good. He kind of gets me. He kind of understands. It's okay. It ain't no big deal. Certainly God's a God of love. And since he's a God of love, then he really understands my intentions and he's really not that bothered with my imperfections and sins as long as he knows that we mean, we mean okay generally. But you know what? That's all self-delusion. It's all making ourselves our own God because the God of the Bible will not, does not fit that mold. If you think you're a Christian and you're anywhere in that realm of what I mentioned, you don't believe Christianity. You don't believe the Bible. You don't believe the gospel. God will not forever overlook the sins of mankind who don't trust in Jesus. And you may think God's okay with you because your life is pretty good right now, but that's a scary, delusional place to live. God's wrath is real. It's going to be poured out on man. The only question is whether you personally will bear that wrath or whether you will trust in the fact that Jesus came to bear the wrath you deserve. He's made a way that you can be rendered or be accounted as completely right. The question is, are you trusting in him by faith? If not, will you trust in him by faith? It's never too late. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's only one way, though, to be accepted or justified, considered right and acceptable, and that is by means of the payment of propitiation. And what that means is, if we can only be made right by the payment of Jesus, then there's no room to boast. So really the fourth truth that Paul's pointing at is, we're not right to boast. What, do you, what, do you, what's the, what room do you have to boast? Uh, look down your Bible. It says, what, in verse 27, he says, then what becomes of our boasting? He gets excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, by law of faith. There's no room for us to boast if we're only right before God as a gift by His grace. He didn't make us right with Him for anything that we did or didn't do. And by the way, um, if you are a believer and you are critical and you are criticizing other people or how other people live or you live judgmentally, let me help you. You are boasting and you are not right to boast. We have no room to boast. We have no room to boast in any of our own ability. Our confidence, our boasting is now in the perfect life of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. We have much to boast about, but it's in Christ. We can boast that he was made perfectly humble for us when we are convicted that we're proud. That's what we can boast about. Okay, when, 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 when you are convicted that you are impatient, you can boast that Jesus earned your perfect patience. That's what you can boast about. When you're convicted that you're disobedient, we can boast that Jesus was obedient in our place. Are you getting the picture yet? When we're convicted that we're unfaithful, we can boast that we have the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When you're convicted that we're lazy, we can boast that we have the diligence of Christ credited towards us. When you're convicted that you don't measure up or that you're hateful, you can 
You can boast that in Jesus, he counts you as having already measured up and that in Jesus, you have his love credited to you. When you're convicted that you're unmerciful, you can boast that you have the mercy of Jesus credited towards you. That's what we can boast of. When you're convicted that you're self-seeking or judgmental, we can boast that God creates the other's focus of Jesus and the self-giving of Jesus and the righteousness of Christ to us. We can boast that God credits us as having glorified and honored him fully when we're convicted that we worship ourselves. Wherever you're convicted of your sinful actions or behavior, your attitude, your failure, your loss, your lack, your fickleness, your lying, your deceit, we can boast in Jesus. We're not right to boast in ourselves, but we are right to boast in him. And here's the good news, this fifth rock-solid truth of the passage. We are always right in his righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always right in the sense of, like, I like to think when I'm having an argument with my spouse. I'm not always right in that sense. We're not always right in our own eyes. We're not always right in our own actions and our own doing. But we are always right in his righteousness. That's the key. In his righteousness. It doesn't mean we always do right. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we always act rightly. But it means that we are always counted as right with God in his righteousness. Look in verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul began that way in verse 21. He reiterates it again. We're declared righteous by faith apart from the law. And then he goes on. He says, you know, God's not just the, the God of the the Jews, he's a God of the Gentiles too because there's only one God and here's how he justifies everybody, how he makes right, he will make right, make righteous the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He'll make righteous or just to stand before him both those who are moral or religious and those who are irreligious the same way by faith. Whether you are a good Jew or a rank pagan jerk, We are justified, made righteous before God through faith. We are always right in his righteousness. And don't go away from here saying, you know, the pastor told me I was always right. (laughs) You missed the second part, in his righteousness. And so then Paul gets to the place in verse 31 He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So, wait a minute, if the law was never able to make us right and just, then do we just get rid of the law? Do we nullify it? Do we overthrow it? Do we say the law was no good? He says, no, we actually, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. What does he mean by that? What he means is that Jesus, in our placing our faith in Jesus, who perfectly upheld the law, we uphold the law by faith. We uphold the law by faith. We're seen as completely upholding the law by faith. He upheld the law. He freed us from the curse of sin so we can actually now begin to act with a right heart. So in a sense, this law is upheld in Christ's completion of the law for us. He fulfilled the law for us and on our behalf. What the law foreshadowed or was fulfilled and upheld in Jesus. 
We say the law is good. And God's standards and his righteousness are good. And we uphold that as good. But we also, in faith, uphold the law, meaning that Jesus upheld it in our place. It's meant to do something in us. That's meant to, that's meant to remove any shaky boasting in ourselves and make us boast in Christ. And it's made, meant to provoke us to live for Jesus since he's given all for us. The standards of God's law are good and, and God counts us now. Everybody here who places faith in Jesus, he counts you completely, forever, irrevocably, without repentance, no taking away. Now, it doesn't mean you don't repent, but I mean, God will not repent. He does not take away. He counts us as fully having met his righteous demands. So when you mess up, God's not like, what a jerk, they messed up again. God says, no, I count them as completely right in Christ because Jesus met my demands. All wrath is already, the debt has already been paid fully. There's no more debt to pay. They're right. That's why Hebrews talks about coming before the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because we're right. God clothes us with the robes of Jesus, with his righteousness, with his rightness. He puts his very rightness on us. So now we can actually come before God and say, God, you see me as right. And I, I can boldly come before you and ask you for mercy and grace when I know I mess up, but you see me as right, so I come before your throne of grace with, to receive mercy and grace in my time of need. And by the way, who of us is not ever in a place where we were, how are you ever said, all of us always needs God. We're always in a place where we need God's mercy. We're no longer drifting out in cold space with no hope for rescue. We've been rescued. We've been brought back into the warmth of his son. We're loved. I have a quote by Kent Hughes. He, he shares this. And, and I hope your heart has been stirred this morning. I hope that you see it is astounding that God calls us righteous. Completely. Forever. Irrevocably. By faith. And it's Jesus' righteousness. Kent Hughes kind of revels in this. He says, we are loved. He says, this is so wonderful that perhaps we should lie flat on our faces, struck dumb before God. Maybe that's an appropriate response for you this morning, just worship. God, let me do away with all boasting, Lord. Let me be struck by this, Lord. We are loved. I'm just struck dumb that you would love me. And then he says, we're perhaps on our backs laughing. I love that picture. Kind of being out in the field in the open with a a sunny day just on your back laughing so phenomenal he says is his love that both responses would be proper I would say both responses are proper let what does God want us to do well, well nothing what does God expect us to do nothing it's already been done what's our response to be I, I think our response is to be humility there's no boasting if, if you're inclined to self-righteousness, put aside your boasting. If you're inclined to criticism, put aside your criticism. That's, that's saying that somehow you've, you're better on your own. If you're inclined to think that you don't have God's righteousness, let me encourage you to revel. 
If you feel like God doesn't love you, let me encourage you to lie flat on your back laughing and say, thank you, God, that you love me freely, completely, no matter what I feel like. And whenever I mess up, you don't see me as messed up. You see me as right. It's a call for humility, and humility, it, it kind of paves this way for this, this exhilarating, this joyful, this infinite grace of God to, to kind of be poured out on our human hearts and give us new life. We, we sang a song, Holy Spirit, revive us again. This is what revives us. We're forever right. Forever right with his righteousness, no matter how much we slip up or mess up or what our consciences tell us, our consciences make this meant to drive us back to confess to God and receive his cleansing again. And so our response is to be one of humility and rejoicing. You know, I can't believe that we are seen as on equal footing with Jesus. That's just astounding. You know, I can't believe the truth that I'm actually righteous before God like Jesus because of the sacrifice of Jesus' blood on my behalf and that I just receive it by faith. I can't believe it, but I have to believe it. I must believe it. I can't believe the truth, but I must believe the truth. So I do believe the truth. Do you? I must trust in it and revel in it. And by it, I'm freed and revived. I pray that your experience as well. By this truth that you are right before God because of Jesus, by faith, believe it, trust in it, revel in it, be revived. There's no reason for you ever to be downcast in your soul ever again. You have the righteousness of God. Let's pray and then we'll close. Father, how can we say thanks? Thanks is inadequate. You satisfied your wrath. You've been shown to be just, right, by not passing over our sins and punishing them in Jesus. And yet you've shown to be glorious and righteous and give us your righteousness, the justifier of all those who trust in you. God, I pray that we would be astounded by and and live in the good of that, that we would revel in and rejoice in it. And that you would make our hearts glad. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Would you give us revival in your good news, in your gospel? Would you revive our hearts and minds in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, 